Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Raj Sahuli, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and the Hassenfeld Children's Hospital. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Sarah Tabbitt from UCSF's Benioff Children's Hospital and Dr. Angela Bates from the University of Alberta's Stollery Children's Hospital. They participated in a session entitled, Are Registries Worth the Investment at the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society's annual meeting this past December? Thank you so much, Dr. Tabbitt and Dr. Bates for joining me. To start, for those new or unfamiliar with medical registries, what is the purpose of a medical registry and what are some examples of medical registries that are active in the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care? Uh, well, I could start with that. I think about um, leveraging data. There's basically registries and then there's administrative databases. So the administrative da databases give you much, much, much higher numbers, but the data fields are created by administrators for what's good for the administration. Um, so sometimes it's really difficult to answer a question because you just don't have granular data. So I think that's really what started driving the medical registries. I think in our field, Society of Thoracic Surgeons probably has the greatest experience uh, in terms of actually capturing pretty much all sites that are performing heart surgery. And so within the registries, we try to do our best to collect enough granular data that you can actually say something about outcomes and try to improve care. I do think that if you work with a registry long enough and you have enough proposals coming in for research, you quickly realize that in certain areas, you definitely are limited and it would be nice to have additional um, information. So just from a registry standpoint, not talking about the collaborative, um, that's sort of how I think about registries relative databases. And I can speak for the United States, but the other major uh, registry in critical care would be virtual PICU systems, which is out of CHLA. They're incredibly strong for PICU patients, but they have created a cardiac arm. And we've met with them um, from the PC4 leadership. We've met with on many occasions. I think we, I think they do a really great job, especially helping the mixed units. And then I think we, the PC4 group kind of, at least initially, we started to really dedicated cardiac units and have sort of spread in um, to mixed units. We have worked with the VPS on trying to set up some collaborations, but it's not so easy to share share data as one might think. Uh, so that's just always an ongoing conversation. Yeah, thanks, sir. I, um, in terms of you know the purpose of medical registries, I don't think I have a lot to add. That was pretty comprehensive. You know, I sort of look at it as someone who's coming into it as mostly a clinician who's building her portfolio and research. It's a great way to to look at both quality of how you're doing. Um, matched up with other people in your um, within your realm of expertise. So with ours, it's you know the cardiac intensive care world, but also to move forward with different initiatives and evaluate how those are doing and what our outcomes are, and hopefully be able to get more patients um, quicker and to be able to make changes and interventions that actually make a difference. I had to look in terms of actual active registries in the pediatric cardiac intensive care field. I had to go back and just do a little bit of research just to see whether there was an actual area where they've, uh, whether it's a uh, uh, registry or something where they've actually listed the, the different registries you can be part of. And um, it was in 2010, I found a paper that they looked at needing the need for global databases in congenital heart surgery and in pediatric cardiac critical care. 
Um, there's been a lot of discussion that this could be useful worldwide. And then in 2017, in the World Journal for Pediatric and Congenital Heart Surgery, they actually listed several registries that people are part of, both adult and, and pediatric. And so PC4 is part of that database list as well, a registry list, sorry, as well as the PPHNet, which I'm part of. But some of the other ones that we're specifically part of in the pediatric cardiac intensive care world would be the ELSO, um, which is the um, worldwide um, registry for mechanical support, as well as there's a European equivalent um, as uh, registry as well. And then the ISHLT, PDMAX, and Intermax um, database, which a lot of our patients who are part of our pediatric critical care unit will be part of. And so many of us may be involved in those, as champions of those registries as well. Great, great. I think you guys touched on many of them already, but I was going to ask if you thought if you could list them, what are some of the advantages of joining um, medical registries? Well, I think when I look at the advantage of it, certainly being someone who's early on in my career, so one, even at the outset, it's just a great way to build collaboration, to start looking at um, you know, who's in the field and how can you work together to do different research initiatives, but it gives you also a bar to measure against. So it's not only the quality of improvement initiative, but also then building on research um, ideas. I think advancements and therapies can move forward a lot more quickly. And obviously we can power research a lot quicker uh, with more numbers of patients. And I think that especially in this virtual world, as we move more towards a global um, platform that can move between countries. I think the it's become a little bit more easy to approve different ethics applications to do data transfer across borders. So I think that's all been advantages of being part of multiple registries because you do learn from other people's um, both their successes and their um, challenges. Yeah, I think uh, Angela brings up some really good points. And I think in addition to just being a registry, like thinking of it as just a registry is a little bit limited, but thinking of it as a collaborative is uh, a collaborative registry is much more encompassing. And I think um, at least I can speak for PC4 by having a live platform in real time where you can benchmark your results against these other institutions. Once you've joined for a year and your data is good, you can then see which institutions which. So if you're outcome in something is not what you'd like it to be, you can see the institutions that are high performers, contact them, improve outcomes. And I, I, I do think that the registries have moved more towards at least annual meetings, you know, integrating both data collectors with physicians, coming up with ideas. So I do think like for many of these, I think the word registry, at least for most of the platforms we're talking about, is probably a little limited and more of a collaboration knowing that the platform of the collaboration is is data, is data collection. Great. So this question is for you, Dr. Bates. As junior faculty joining a smaller registry of pulmonary hypertension centers, how are you able to gather the support needed from your colleagues and institution to fulfill the obligations needed to participate in the registry, i.e. money and people, and then utilize the registry to maximize learning, quality improvement, and research? So to answer the first part of the question, um, Raj, I think that, the, you know, I'm very fortunate to be part of a wonderful group of people that are always excited about anyone taking on a challenge the and, and taking on a new experience. I think the biggest thing is, is everyone um, is limited with time. Everyone's limited with resources. So I think if you can look forward as to what, to what you can uh, bring to the table that will minimize asking 
money, um, time from other people. I think that's very helpful, but obviously you do need money to make things move forward and you do need other resources in terms of manpower to help things to move forward. So what we were fortunate enough was, was starting the PPH network registry was that we came with some funding from the outside, um, which helped us to sort of get everything going. It helped um, take the initial strain off so we could prove to our both the colleagues and our institution that this was going to be beneficial once we could see a bit more of the product of it. Um, and therefore then asking for funding further later on has become a little bit um, less challenging. Um, but also in terms of manpower, I've had to be a bit creative in terms of who's going to actually enter the data, you know, trying to unify who's doing the data processing. And so to minimize how many people were having to, to basically, for lack of a better word, pay to be able to go through all of that um, has also helped. And then in terms of trying to get a little bit more buy-in to maximize learning and quality improvement and research, we've done it where, um, because our registry is smaller and we did really need a timeline to be able to go through numbers to actually build policies and guidelines and that sort of thing. Um, in the meantime, we did sort of interim analysis and then we would come back every year and go back to our perspective our respective groups and sort of say, this is what we're learning with our registry. Um, we might not have hard, fast outcomes yet, but it was certainly showing that the value of coming together as a group. Um, we also have done some publications along the way, but then ultimately now getting a product out there from with our patients, it's looking at actual you know guidelines in the field of pediatric pH, which are limited, um, which is supported by data, and then sharing that locally and saying that you know here look at Stollery as a part of this research and look at these great efforts that we've done moving forward. So that's how we've um, been able to sort of get excitement in our colleagues at both an institutional level and both at um, the other my other intensivist colleagues. Great. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, Dr. Tabit, over the last several years, we've watched the incredible growth of the PC4 Reg Registry and Collaborative, its publication and collective improvement through participation. What are some of the next steps you see for PC4 to harness the power of the extensive data collected in this registry to improve the field of cardiac intensive care? Uh, thank you, Raj. I want to just take one minute to reiterate a little bit what Angela said for the junior faculty. I mean, I wasn't super junior when we started with PC4, but I did enter the data myself for at least two and a half to three years because actually the cost of joining the registry is a small fraction of the FTEs that enter the data. And over time, um, when the administration needed something, a benchmark, and I had the benchmark more and more time, I provided information to our administration that's how we got the support, the FTE support to enter the data because they started to realize that these benchmarking registries are really a great way for them to get information. So I do think that there is an upfront risk, but I know certainly in PC4 and the other registries, when we do publish, we make a strong effort that the first author is either a fellow in training or, or, or a junior faculty. So the answer to your other question, sorry, I diverged. Yeah, so we we have grown a lot. Um, we've definitely demonstrated, you know, if you participate for over two years, there's a there's a reduction in mortality in your ICU plus the cardiac arrest prevention and reducing um, cardiac arrest. So I do feel that we've made some significant contributions uh, to the field, other than just sort of descriptive, um, um, descriptive or risk modeling. I think the next steps, and we're actually working on this now, is going to be to engage with randomized clinical trials. And there's several examples of this where randomized clinical trials can reduce the cost of the study significantly if they can leverage data that's already being collected from a registry. And so I think this is going to be another big step for us. 
And hopefully if it's successful, that's something that we can continue. I actually thought uh, a particularly um, provocative talk during the session was from Dr. Andrew Shin from Stanford, talking about the future of research becoming more automated and uncoupled with the costs and errors of data collection and analysis by humans. Um, he believes we can utilize the same natural language processing used by tech companies to automate data collection. How close are we to becoming are, are we to seeing this become commonplace in healthcare? And do you believe also believe his assertion that restructuring registries to an open access model could lead to an explosion of new knowledge creation that would be particularly advantageous for smaller or under-resourced institutions? Those are two um, really good questions. I'll start with the first. Both Andy and I have been working with probably the platform that's uh, the furthest along in trying to do uh, use uh, language process learning um, and automated data fields from the electronic medical record. He might be a little bit glass half full and I'm half empty, but I've also spent a little bit more time, you know, with my actually working on the data entry. I think this is something of the future without a doubt. Are we ready to go there right now? No, none of this, the data fields have not yet been, not been, I mean, simple data fields, yes, we already have automated data entry for simple things like demographics. And, but for, you know, some of the real granular data we're taking, we're looking for, we have to search through the medical record to find it. We're, we're, it's there in theory, but we just haven't put it into practice. So I would believe in, you know, maybe even five years that that is going to be the way that people go right now the lift to do the testing for these, you know, software companies is significant. And so it's not realistic for the sites that are behind in data entry to reach out to them to help them catch up until we can validate that that this um, science works. But the explosion could be that if they can get it to work, the amount of data that we could download into the registry would be phenomenal, way beyond the scope and gr more granular than and beyond the scope of what the data collectors could realistically do. So I agree with him that that's the future and once that happens, we're going to just, you know, we can move, we can move directly to machine learning because we'll just have, we'll just have so much data. Your second question about opening the data up. I do think that the, it, I'm super supportive of cross-registry data sharing, opening it up to the like general public, so to speak, I'm a little bit more, would be a little bit more cautious about like, um, I do think it's important when you're cross-registry sharing data that people understand the data fields and how the data is collected and the accuracy of the data. So those are all things that would have to be taken into account before just sort of like opening the field, opening the field wide open. Yeah, I don't think I have um, too much to add to what Sarah has. Obviously, you have a lot more exper experience in this uh, field, Sarah, but just from, you know, obviously it's someone's a little bit more naive to it, but certainly I think if we can overcome the initial challenges of getting to where data can be, you know, easily extracted and automated uh, collection can occur. I think that the explosion will just happen. But just um, to speak to what Sarah was mentioning in terms of just being careful about how people are interpreting that data, uh, we certainly have seen, even with our own small registry, where it was initially you know, built by nine individuals who all really felt that they spoke the same lingo and practiced fairly similarly. But even when data was being entered and then interpreted by um, others, it was certainly interesting how much we had to go back and actually kind of refine things and um, and make sure that things were really truly being entered under the same with the same language. And so you could see where that could, at a much bigger level, become a huge challenge. Um, but I certainly think there's ways to overcome that. And I think as the field grows, that will become uh, we'll be able to fine tune that and tweak that a lot a lot easier. But I certainly think that it 
you know, especially we can see how fast the world's moved forward in the era of COVID, all working towards the same common goal. And I think that if we look at congenital heart disease and our approach, and if we can work at this worldwide, I think we can see the same improvements at a, you know, a much larger scale and let's be able to um, have advances in therapies, um, hopefully a lot quicker um, and with a very thoughtful evaluation. It will be very amazing to see over the next five to 10 years where this field moves. Yeah, I thought he had a really interesting slide. It was basically like the current model we have kind of like a funnel of great ideas and like selecting the best ideas and moving those along towards publications, new knowledge, dissemination and uh, implementation. And then how he kind of showed how we could have actually several of these being developed simultaneously and that could really change how we um attain new knowledge. And I thought that was really exciting and hopefully uh, the future for our field. I think a super important thing that Angela just um, talked about, which share making sure you have common data fields if you're sharing data across registries. If you had automated data entry, you wouldn't need those data definitions. For example, low cardiac output. We struggle and struggle about this. We change our definition every version. And I'm sure our definition of low cardiac output is slightly different than the definition of low cardiac output at VPS or in the pulmonary hypertension network. But if you were able to download all the vitals and all the vasoactives, you could change your definition based on, you know, you wouldn't have to have a common definition. You would have all the data. And then once you have all that data... Instead of coming up with risk models, which our traditional way right now of doing is like you and me sit in a room and we think what would be a risk, what would be a risk factor, and then we do a regression analysis and see if it's a risk factor. You just do machine learning on all this data and you come up with risk factors that we're not even thinking about. So like the explosiveness of what could happen if this automatic data entry actually occurs is going to be huge. And, and I think it's coming down the line very quickly. I agree. So I wanted to ask this particular question, which I thought was interesting. So the title of the session of the, at the meeting was, Are Registries wor Worth the Investment? The both of you guys are esteemed clinicians and leaders of the field who participate at registries at established programs. However, I wanted to challenge you to imagine that you are a junior faculty to a new institution without a history of participation in registries. How would you show your division chief, department chair, and administration the benefits of joining one or more of those registries and prove it to them that it'd be worth the resource costs? And then once you join, what are some of the methods you use to disseminate the knowledge gained from the registry participation to your institution? So I think, um, Raj, having been, you know, very early on when I took on the registry, um, fortunately, it had already actually been, you know, had started being used at our center. So I didn't necessarily have to pitch it. I definitely had to defend it along the way. But, um, but I think... The biggest thing, just I had to learn about registries and what was important about them. And so I, I went back to what I would discuss what what is the point of a registry. And then I would I would uh, discuss a little bit more about, as Sarah had mentioned, going beyond what the word of registry, but what does it actually mean in terms of collaborating with other centers? What can that gain for improvement of care at our center? But also, I think I would draw on experience of registries that are already successful. So um, there's many registries that have a lot of published data that have showed how their collaboratives have have improved quality, have improved research in their fields. And then that specific registry that you're part of, um, certainly if it's new, there may not be a lot of information if it's just up, you know, getting off the ground such as the PBHNet was. But our center is looking at becoming part of the PC4 registry, and we're already starting to talk about what has PC4 already done for the individual sites that are part of that group and use the evidence that's already there to sort of encourage our institution to support us both financially and at a resource level. And so that's how I'd address the first part of the question, at least initially. 
In terms of methods for disseminating knowledge, I think already taking the, you know, sort of what Sarah spoke to when she had um, initially was part of the PC4 is I think, and what we've done the PBHN is taking the data that you've already gained at your own institution, even throughout registry. And, and you can highlight that whether it's at your regular quality improvement, quality assurance rounds. Um, certainly when you've been part of an actual study that's published actual, you know, when the data has been processed and we've looked at therapies or interventions or how, or benchmarking levels, certainly sharing that um, at either a conference level, or of course now the zoom platforms, whether there's an actual grand rounds you can present at, I think there's lots of ways um, to do it that way as well. Those are obviously very simplistic things, but those are things I can think of at certainly as a junior staff that I would look at starting at in terms of trying to disseminate that knowledge. I think the one thing I would think about like getting it going is who's going to be, who's going to support you. It's either going to be your division chief, in which case it's going to more likely be an academic spin and what you're going to try and start your academics as part of this registry, or it's going to be the hospital leadership who's going to look at it for a quality spin. You're going to the hospital administration because they're looking for U.S. News and World Report, you know, PC4 is a point. Let's start PC4. You don't want to talk to them about research. You want to talk to them about what PC4 has done to improve outcomes in kids, shorten length of stay, you know, the cross-center quality initiatives we have that are going to get them what they want. If it's your academic chief who's saying, okay, what are you going to do to start doing papers? Then you're going to take the other side of it, which is going to be, you know, look at these are the, you know, these are the um, first authors or second authors from small institutions that have participated in this registry. And either way, I think you're going to have to make a commitment up front to put a lot of your time into the registry, to learn the registry, to learn how to use the platform, to learn how to use the benchmark data so that that can go back to your quality core because then they will continue to support you or they will start supporting you. And similarly, you have to get involved in research projects. Don't just sit back in your place and, you know, enter data, like get involved in the calls, get involved with the community. You hear that people are going to look at a proposal, you know, volunteer to be part of that proposal, and then that will promote your your research career. I think it is very, very doable. You just need to decide where your focus is going to be and put the and 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 put a time commitment in to get it going. Thanks. Finally, what would you like to see change in the current models of most of our registries in cardiology, cardiac surgery, or intensive care? Well, I could start. I think, you know, the next big step is really going to be collaboration across registries. And the first step of that's going to include data use agreements, you know, cross-border data sharing, data definitions that might not be the same across registries. But I think that that's like, I mean, we can move to that right now. And the and then the second step is the big thing we talked about that in the future, potentially, you know, we'd have more automated data fields. All these registries could be open to each other, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So to me, the concept of Cardiac Networks United and their vision of trying to bring registries together, figure out ways with the data use agreements to share share information across registries and do cross-registry outcomes, quality projects and research projects is, I think, our, to me, that seems like our next step. I have to agree with Sarah. I think just to go along those lines, sort of going back to the question that you'd asked before in terms of selling it to the group that you're part of, um, certainly when it comes to financially supporting this, I think the amount you can minimize. So if you can, if you can share across registries, then obviously you can start to minimize the amount of money you're having to put towards multiple different projects, multiple different individuals, the data sharing, if it's an automated data collection, that's obviously going to cut down on the amount of um, FTs you're actually going to have to spend in terms of, you know, and, and support. So I think that those are all, I think those go hand in hand. And I think 
from that, then you can also work on selling it to more institutions because they'll be able to get more support. Individuals be able to get more support from their either hospital admin or their um, university or whatever they're affiliated with in terms of research support. So I think it will go hand in hand. And certainly, certainly I think that then everything will fall in suit in terms of the, as we talked about, kind of the exciting feel, explosion in the field, I think that will just continue to to move forward. Thank you again to Dr. Sarah Tabbitt and Dr. Angela Bates for speaking with me today about our registries worth the investment. We've enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attributions License.